Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25. And while you're doing that, I'm going to very quickly review because we have communion today and I want to be able to, to have an ample enough time to do that. So we're not rushing through that as some ritual, but we're able to give it the proper attention that it deserves because it is the Lord's body. And the Bible says that if you don't discern his body rightly, that's why many are sick and a number sleep, which means go on to be with the Lord. That's what the Word of God says. So we want to discern the body of the Lord correctly this morning. And what we're talking about while you're turning to Matthew 25 is really the basis of our, our discussion for some time now has been growing up spiritually, taking our place, finding out who we are as members of the body of Christ and then taking our place. And we're looking at right now in Ephesians 4.12, don't turn there, but it says that the ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are given to the body of Christ, to the church, to equip the saints. We've seen that the saints are, we're all saints. Doesn't mean we're acting saintly, but we, that's who we are. So that we can do the work of the ministry. And what we're talking about is this term ministry. <clears throat> that is the word diakonos, which literally means table waiter, serving. It's, it's not a glorious title. It's not a profession. It's a service. It's a calling that we all have to God. And every one of us is called to do something for the Lord to, as, and to function. As, since you're a part of his body, you're called to function. Do something. And it's called work, the work of the ministry. And then we spent some time going through Romans chapter 12, around verse 3 down through verse 8, looking at some examples of what some of these ministries are. And we were trying to understand there's not a complete listing. The Bible does not have a complete listing of all the ministries because it talks about the manifold grace of God. The term grace not just referring to our salvation, which comes by grace, but it's everything God gives us is, is, comes by His grace. Therefore, the gifts that God has put in you for His service, that is a grace that Paul talks about. And he talks about the manifold, the many-sided grace of God. And that's because he works through your personalities. So just as you may have the same gift in two different people, they, may op- they will operate differently because they'll operate through your personality. God will not make you weird. So one of my concerns when I got saved is, oh my goodness, if I yield to the Holy Spirit, he's going to make me weird and strange. <clears throat> and, and he didn't do that. God's smart. A lot smarter than a lot of people in church are. He knows that in order for us to relate to people, we can't be weird. Now, that doesn't mean that God might not have you do something that looks unusual to you, but it's not weird. There's a purpose behind it. It's not flakiness. And so we've seen, as we've looked at some of these gifts, the idea was to kind of give a sampling to us. Because God, there's one of these in you. Whether it's one of these gifts, there's a gift, that, at least one, that God's put in you, an ability that God's put in you to operate for the benefit of, of His body and to accomplish His will. And then we went over to Matthew 25, and that's where we are today. And I want to begin to look at the last section of this, as we turn to Matthew 25, what we've seen in Matthew 25 is there's three parables. Parables are simply stories that Jesus uses uh, in order to teach a principle. And there are three basic different principles in these stories. The first story he tells, which we did not really get into, was, is the story of the, of the ten virgins. And they are waiting outside for the bridegroom to come, and each of them have a lamp. And their lamps, they're not flashlights like we would use today, but it's a lamp. You ever see the pictures of Aladdin's lamp or something like that? It was a bowl that contained oil, and that would have a wick in it. And what they had is they trimmed the wicks, which means they'd cut them back to, to conserve the oil. And, and half of the virgins brought plenty of oil so that they could wait a long time, and the other half only brought what they could grab at the time. And the problem is that the bridegroom waited longer than they expected. And, of course, it's referring to Jesus coming back and that we don't know when he's coming. 
but we have to be prepared, and that's really what that parable is about. What happened is when the bridegroom came, half of the virgins were ready. They were, their lamps, they had enough oil ready, and the others did not have enough oil. It had burned out. And so the ones that did not have enough asked the ones that did have enough to share. And the ones that did have enough said, well, we're not going to have enough for ourselves. And so what happened is half of them didn't get to come in with him. And the point of that parable is preparedness. We don't know when he's coming back, but we're to live our life prepared. And another teaching from it, which we didn't get into, is that the oil represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It represents the anointing to do what God's called you to do. And therefore, we are to be busy about what he's called us to do under the anointing of his spirit. The second parable, which we did spend some time on, is known as the parable of the talents. And that starts in verse 14, and there's a story of another, again, a master that goes away for a long time, but he's going to come back. And when he goes away, what he gives to, he gives to each of his three, these three servants that we see referred to here, he gives to each of them a number of talents, which was amount of money, according to their ability. We talked about that. And then when he comes back, he asks for an accounting of what they did. And the first one came and said, you gave me five talents, here's five more. Because the Bible says that he, the story Jesus told says that he went and he traded them. And we talked about what the trading means. The trading means that a risk, you're sowing something, you're taking what you have and you're investing it, you're, you're using it, you're letting go of it. And there's some risk in that, but if you'll do that, God will multiply it back to you. So he had, the one that was given five had ten to give back to his master. The one that was given two had four to give. They doubled what he'd given them, and he was very pleased with them. But the third one, when he came along, what he had done is he'd taken the talent that the master had given him, and he dug a hole and stuck it in the ground because he was afraid. What he said was, I was afraid of you because I, I know you're an unfair master and that you require things that you did not give me the ability to do. Now, that's not what the master was like, but that's the excuse that this servant gave. So he says, I put it in the ground, and here's what you gave back to me. And that's not what the master had expected. And so the master, the master cuts right to the issue. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. He didn't buy the excuse that, see, the, the, the servant was trying to put it off on the master. and said, it's your fault that I didn't do it because you're tough. And the master cut right through that. He says, no, the issue is you're lazy. That's the issue. And so, uh, and he says that he took what he had given him and gave it to the others. And we see that the story is talking about that, that we're stewards of whatever God's given to us. We sang a song this morning that was about that. Whatever, God's, whatever we have, God gave you. You didn't create anything, even your own life. And everything that you have, God has given to you, and he's given it to you with a purpose. He's entrusted it to you. And, and especially whatever gifts he's given to you, and he's entrusted to you because it's for the benefit of somebody other than you. And that's the point of the third parable, which is what we're going to begin to look at today. So these parables fit together. Now, I want to tell you as I get into this parable that this parable is not one of my favorite ones. It makes me uncomfortable. We're going to look at it a little bit, and then we're going to go and look at some other things because I really believe that the point of this parable is encouraging. But as you read through it the first time, it can be a little unsettling. So we're going to read through the whole parable, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, there He's talking about coming back, and all the holy angels are with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. 
And notice the shepherd at some point separates the sheep that belong to him from goats that he was not given responsibility over. Sheep follow their shepherd, goats do their own thing. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So there will be a time that whatever we've done in this life, we will stand before him and it will determine things. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. And here's the reason why. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Stop there a second. Notice each one of those that he said is I had a need, a natural, physical, material need of this world and you met it. Now, there are some people that believe that God does not get involved in the things of this world. That's one of the reasons they believe that God doesn't heal today because he's, that's beneath him. He only deals in spiritual things, the things that are really important. Well, if you're sick and there's pain in your body, it's really important. But the Bible doesn't reveal a God that's like that, that lives up in the clouds and the things of this life are below him and they're mean. He created them. He created this realm of existence. He created your body. And God cares about our natural needs. He cares about the natural, material, physical needs of people. And here we see, he says, you're, I've got my sheep on my right. And here's why you're my sheep. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was cold, you clothed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Whatever my need is, you met it. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. Now notice the attitude of these righteous sheep. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And when did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. They didn't know they were doing it to him. All they knew is they were meeting somebody's need. All they knew is they were taking what they had, they saw a physical, natural, material need and they went and ministered to it. Served someone else's need. And they did that through the course of their life, and they weren't conscious of some spiritual principle. All they were moved was by compassion in their heart. They had something that God had given to them, and they used it to meet somebody else's need. But in that day, their master who gave them that gift, gave them that ability, gave them that resource, sat them on his right hand, called them his sheep, 
And they said, well, when did we do this unto you? He said, to, he said, when you did it to that person on the street that nobody else noticed, you did it to me. When you stopped in a mall and saw someone that looked discouraged and you just went up to them and said, is everything all right? Can I pray for you? And they just, they may not have even let you pray. They look up at you and smile and said, thank you for caring. When, when you gave money into an offering that was being used to meet somebody else's need. When you, you know, the, the possibilities are limitless. And he says, when you did that, you didn't understand, but you were doing it to me. Now there's the other group, the goats, that he sat on his left-hand side. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepare for me devils, prepare for the devils and for angels. Notice, not for people. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then you will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister? To you. And he asked them to say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will into everlasting life. Now be careful what you do with this. You cannot build your entire doctrine of the gospel based on this story, because that's not its purpose. You cannot take a story out of context and use it for everything. Because you cannot walk away from this and say, well, we're saved by our good works. Because there's too much else in the New Testament to tell us otherwise. So the point here isn't that the sheep on his right hand are going into the kingdom because, they, because they've done good works. What he's saying here is the good works you've done are a result of the fact that you're my sheep. It's the evidence of you belonging to me. Because when you did it to them, you did it to me. Understand the difference? Because otherwise we walk out of here in fear and condemnation, saying, oh my gosh, I've got to spend the rest of my life down on the street, you know, giving money to people wherever I see them. Because otherwise I'm not going to be one of his sheep. That's not what the gospel teaches the whole book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and most of the Hebrews is to tell you the opposite. But there is another side to the gospel. And this is where so much of the charismatic church has missed it. Is we're so busy seeking God and worshiping God here in the sanctuary when God, Jesus is saying to us, yes, but God's out on the street. God's in the mall. God's out there. The Lord spoke to me a while ago. I don't know if I shared it with you or not. He says, your job as a pastor is not to build a church. So he says, too many pastors are building a church. That's not your job. Your job is to train and equip people to reach people out there. Because that's where the church is that God wants to bring in here. That's where God's heart is. He loves us. He's here to, to receive our worship. He's here to bless us and heal us. But His heart is also out there. 
So one of the purposes of this parable is Jesus is teaching them, first of all, he said, be ready. That's the first parable. The second parable, he said, I've given you something. I've entrusted something to you. You're a steward over gifts, abilities that I put in you. And I will come back and there will be an accounting for what you did as a steward, how faithful you were. Not the results, but how faithful you were to use what I put in you. This parable talks about what the use of those gifts are for. It's to meet the needs of people he cares about. He cares about. He cares about them so much that when he sees somebody nobody else notices on a street somewhere, he sees them as belonging to him. His heart is there. If you look through the ministry of Jesus, who's telling this story, you see over and over again where he was going one place and he saw a crowd and he saw their knees and he stopped what he was doing. At one point, he's heard the news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And he's grieving over him. Not only is he the forerunner that came to announce him, this is his cousin. And he's grieved. So he goes up on the mountain to spend time in prayer with his father for comfort. And the crowd sees that he's there and they gather around them the bottom of this mountain or hill or whatever it is and he can see their knees. There there are people there that are lame. There are people there that are blind. There are people there that are demon-possessed. And in the midst of his hurt and agony and his, 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 whatever he's feeling, he's more moved by where they are. And he sets aside his own needs and goes down to the bottom of the mountain and says he healed their sick. And he opened their blind eyes and he ministered to their needs because that's what the heart of God is. And so much of the church, we've had our eyes focused on ourselves, on our church, and on even worshiping God, and yet God's heart is out there. God's heart is out there. His heart is the people on your job. His heart is the people that you're next to in the supermarket. His heart, there are opportunities every day that God brings across our path we don't recognize because we're looking for Him, to serve Him. We're looking to love Him, and those opportunities are all around us. But we're not sensitive to them because we're looking up at Him instead of at the opportunities that he's brought around us. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is people. The Lord brought that across to me a few years ago. And this is after, you know, I've been to Bible school. I've been to all kinds of studies. You know, I, I was a philosophy major in college. I love concepts, ideas, theology. I used to, as a kid before I was even saved, I loved to argue theology and things. I just love to do that. And just, I love ideas and concepts and, you know, Greek words. You've heard me, it's like, I've heard all the time, you know, because they open up concepts to me and I love those. And God spoke to me one day, he says, son, that's wonderful and that's great, but that's not where my heart is. I care about people. I provide things so that you can reach people because it's people that I care about. And this is what Jesus is getting across. He cares about people. The reason you and I are here, and he didn't just save us and take us out of here, is because there are others that he cares about in addition to ourselves. And as I said, so much of the charismatic church, we're so busy with the gifts of the Spirit and worshiping God and the miracles of God among our midst 
that we're missing the reason God's given us all these to us is because there are others out there that he cares about far more than you and I can begin to imagine until we step out and allow him to begin to reach their needs through us, through the gifts that he's given to us. The gifts he's given to you are not to bless you or even just to bless this church. And so the heart of God the Father can be satisfied so that through you he can touch somebody else that he cares about that you and I don't even know this morning. I want to look at some other examples of this. Go with me to James chapter 1. Now, the book of Hebrews, of course, the end of the book, starting in verse chapter 11, which we're looking at on Wednesday nights. The book of Hebrews, a lot of the book is about faith. And chapter 11 gives you the, def- verse 1 gives you the definition of faith. The rest of that chapter is kind of known as the hall of fame of faith. People in the Bible, both we have names for and some we don't have names for and how they walked by faith and how the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God in verse 6 and all about faith. And then James comes along and looks like he's talking about good works. But what James is talking about essentially is that if you have faith, then the evidence of that faith is going to be in what you do. Because he says in chapter 3, if you show me, you say, I have faith, well then show me your faith by your good works, because I'll show you what my faith is like by the way I live my life. Because faith does things, it acts. And so as part of that, we see in verse, uh, well, we're going to look in verse, in verse 21 and 22 and 23, and there he's talking about, he said that faith, if he's saying there, you, you know, um, uh, be doers of the word and not hearers only, because if you, are, if, you, if you hear the word only, but you don't act on what you hear, you deceive yourself. So he's talking there about people that take God's word and say, I believe God's word. Isn't God's word wonderful? I sit in church and I receive God's word. It's great. We're blessed today. Isn't it wonderful? But then you don't turn around and act on what you've heard. He says you deceive yourself. Now, it's one thing, bad enough if somebody tricks you. You know, you get a phone call and says, I got a great investment opportunity for you. There's a bridge down in New York. Goes over to Brooklyn. You know, and I'm selling shares in it today. They're really cheap. For 20 bucks, you can own 10% of the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, put me in, brother. Well, obviously, that's, there's a con artist, you know, and he's trying to deceive you. So it's one thing if you fall into somebody else's deceit and they trick you. It's far more tragic when you do it to yourself. And James said that if all you do is hear the word, get so blessed by the word, but then you don't integrate it and begin to act on what you've heard, then you deceive yourself. Now, look at what he's going to meant, how he, the context in which he's going to use that. He's going to use it in the context of church and religion. Look at verse 26. If any of you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless or worthless. In other words, if you think you're religious and it hasn't affected your practical life, you're not involved in other people's lives helping them, then you've deceived yourself 
You think your religion is wonderful, but in God's eyes, it's worthless. Very sobering. And ultimately, what's in God's eyes is what counts, isn't it? It isn't where I think I am. It isn't where you think I am. It's where he knows I am, because I've got news for you. He's always right. One thing I learned as a lawyer, don't argue with the judge. Whether you think he's right or not, he's right. In his court, he's right. Now you can have the opportunity to appeal his decision to somebody else, but there is no appeal from his decision because he is always right. That's why God doesn't have opinions. When you are always right, you don't have opinions. Now let's go on and see what James says here. What is true religion? Verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, God sees true religion, whether we're really religious. And I mean that in the right way by what we do with what he's given us. Do we keep it to ourselves? We just bless ourselves and bless those around us? Because in God's eyes, that's not true religion. In God's eyes, true religion is when we take what he's given us and we touch other people's lives with it, that he cares about. Now go with me to Isaiah 58. Now, what's going on here, just for background, is this is a time in the history of Israel when everything outwardly looks wonderful. They're going to the temple, they're performing all the, all the rituals that they're supposed to perform, all the sacrifices they're supposed to perform, <clears throat> but their prayers aren't getting answered. They're doing the appointed fasting but there seems to be, God's not answering their prayers. And, and after a while, they're beginning to get frustrated with this. And so they're cried out to God for some things. And Isaiah is a prophet of God, and God's speaking to his people through them. We're going we're gonna to look at um, verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen, talking to God? Why have we afflicted our souls, that means not eaten, and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, now this is God repeating back to his people what he's heard them saying to him. Are you with me? So God, through the prophet, is repeating back to the people of Israel what God has heard them saying about him. So this is, you know, we've afflicted our souls, and you, God, you've taken no notice. And this is his answer. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure 
and you exploit your labor. So you're going through this ritual of fasting, but what's going on in your heart is you're still rejoicing and having fun. So you're doing it as a dead work. You're not eating food, but you're still watching TV, you're going to the, you know, you're going to the ball game, you're having, you're enjoying your tough self, even though you've said you've set yourself aside to seek me, because that's the purpose of fasting. But you're wondering why I'm not hearing, because that's really not what you're doing. You're going through the motion of it, but your heart's far away from me. And it gets worse. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure, and you exploit all your work laborers. In other words, you're being unjust to the people that work for you. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. They were fasting to get back at people. God, I'm going to go on a fast so you can get Brendan. He looked at me the wrong way. He owes me 10 bucks. He doesn't. But he owes me 10 bucks. And I've looked at him. I've gone, and now I'm going to fast. You get him. That's what they were doing. Not at Brendan, but that's what they were doing. They were trying to get God. Now listen, this is what's so important. They didn't understand the heart of God. You can tell it because their heart towards God was not right. They were saying in everybody else's eyes, oh, I'm religious because I'm taking this day of fast and I've set this day of fasting aside. But in their heart, they weren't doing anything different. They were enjoying their life as they did the other day. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your life. But if you're telling God, I've set this day apart to fast and spend my focus on you and yet I'm doing everything else I enjoy doing, then you're fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. You're deceiving yourself, just as James talked about. And now he said, worse than that, not only are you just enjoying yourself, but you're, you're, you're harming people that I care about. You're not treating them just. God hates injustice. Because he is a just God. And God is a defender of the poor and the downtrodden and those that are taken advantage of. God says, you're coming to me claiming that you are being religious and faithful to me and fasting, and yet in the middle of your fast, you're oppressing those people. You're not paying your workers what you should pay them. You're cheating those that you're responsible for. See, God sees the heart. God sees our motives. Motives are everything with God. Motives are everything. Just read 1 Corinthians 13. You fast for strife, verse 4, and debate. You strike with the fist of wickedness. And, will, and you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Now listen to this. Is it a fast that I have chosen for a man, for a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow his head down in a, like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free 
that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and for you to bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? If you do these things, verse 8, then your light shall shine but break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of your Lord will be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke of your mitt in the midst and the pointing of your finger and the speaking of wickedness. God's saying to them, look, all your religious activity doesn't mean anything to me because it's hiding what's really in your heart. You're deceiving yourself. You think you're in a great place because you're doing all these good things in church. He says, but in reality, I see what's in your heart. I see the motives of your heart. I see the way you handle yourself during the week. And he said, this is what pleases me. This is the giving us up of yourself and of what's coming. Because what fasting basically is, is when you put aside what you want to do, and the main thing we want to do is eat. We, the word fasting in Greek, Hebrew, literally means to turn your plate over. We turn our plate over and we say, God, I, he's talked about a flick. I'm going to deny my, my, earthly, my physical pleasures today. I'm going to put what I want to do, what pleases me aside, so I can do what's important to you. And God's saying, what's important to me is how you live your life. What's important to me is how you get along with other people. What's important to me is the hurting people, the lonely, the hurting, the suffering, the poor, the aged, <clears throat> the children, all the needy out there. That's where my heart is. And that's what we're talking about today. That's where God's heart is. So again, just as we saw in Jesus' parable, <clears throat> he says, I've given you gifts to use. And I've given to them because my heart's out there. My heart's out with the people that are in need this morning. <clears throat> and I've given you those gifts so that I can meet those needs through you. James says we deceive ourselves because we think we're so religious because we, we do all these religious things and yet in reality, this is what real religion is, is allowing God through you to touch and meet other people's needs and other people's lives. Isn't that what Jesus did? You go back and you study what Jesus did. The thing he spent his most time at was teaching and preaching. Next behind that was meeting people's physical needs, healing the sick, Delivering the demon-possessed. In other words, meeting people's suffering, solving their suffering, removing their physical sickness, removing their emotional suffering, removing their... their, Even several people whose children were dead, he gave them back to them alive. Wherever he saw needs, he was... Listen carefully. He was willing to meet, but he didn't meet every need. It was those that came to him, with a few exceptions... In faith. Over and over again, he said, it was your faith that made you well. But his attitude in his heart was the Father's heart, was he was there to meet their needs. It was up to them to receive it. But he was there to meet their needs. And as long as it took to do that, he was there spending his time and his love and his energy and his anointing to meet people's needs. That's Jesus, the head of the church. That's Jesus, the head of the body. And we've discovered we are the body 
of Christ. In his heart and his, his, his intentions and his focus is the same today as it was when he walked on the earth. Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can he be the same today as he was 2,000 years ago if he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Because his body is here to do the same works he did 2,000 years ago. And you and I are parts of that body. But we're not functioning parts of the body if all we do is sit in a blue chair and get blessed every Sunday and every Wednesday night. The purpose of coming and getting receiving on Sunday morning and Wednesday night is to be strengthened and equipped so that we can go do the work of the ministry, his work, his service, his meeting people's needs. This is the fast. This is the fast that I, that I have chosen. Now, you can choose your fast, but God says, this is the one I've chosen. It's to relieve people's sufferings. Now, we've talked about how to do that. You don't just go out on your own. You just don't walk in the hospital. Don't leave here say, praise God, go in the hospital and yank up everybody up off of a sick bed. Don't, don't do that if you, and don't say you're from Faith Christian Center if you do that. Because we'll be like the Lord. We'll deny we ever knew you. <laughs> Remember, he says, the gift that he's given to you, use the measure of faith that he's given to you. And, and saints, use your head, common sense. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 does not say, be transformed by the removing of your mind. There are many Christians I've met that I think have misread that. They think that what they're changing the image of Christ by throwing their brain out. Oh, I'm led by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, God does everything decently, decently and in order. Jesus, when he fed the multitudes, had them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. God is an orderly God. He's not a God of chaos. He is an orderly God. He follows outlines. <laughs> That's from yesterday's couples. <laughs> All right. Now, turn with me. We're going to go to the right now, to the book of Jonah. Jonah? What in the world are we doing with Jonah? Well, Jonah is one of my favorite books. You grew up in Sunday school. We've all heard about Jonah and the whale. There have been cute songs about Jonah and the whale. Jonah got, a whale swallowed Jonah. That's not what it says. And it's not a cute story. It's a very powerful story. To understand the story, let me give you a little bit of background. <clears throat> Jonah is a prophet of God. Nineveh was a wicked city. Historians will tell us it's probably one of the most wicked cities. It was in old Babylon, somewhere, somewhere like where Iraq is today. And I think it's somewhere around, near, not far from where Baghdad is today, from what they best can, can determine. But Nineveh was an incredibly wicked and ungodly city. Not only did they perform all kinds of pagan rituals, but they would do things, they would, there was a, 
an expression in the Bible says they would cause their children to pass through the fire. What it is is they had a, an idol. Um, Dagon was a god. And they, would, it was a, they made a big iron uh, image of him hollow. And they would, they, would kindle, they would start a fire in the feet so that this thing became glowing red. And they would literally take their children and put those babies in the arms of this burning idol. And obviously they'd burn up. And the Israelites knew this. They, would, they were terrible to the people that they captured. The kinds of things they did to them, I don't want to begin to tell you because it would ruin your meal for the rest of this day and probably tomorrow. Horrible, hideous things. I just want you to have enough of this background to understand where Jonah's coming from. All right? Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. It's so bad they got God's attention, and God's about to bring judgment down on the city of Nineveh. But before he's going to bring judgment down, he's going to send a prophet to them to warn them. For their wickedness has come up before me. But look at verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Now, now, Jonah is in Israel right now when the story begins. We'll look at it this way. Okay? Nineveh is over here. Nineveh is east of where Jonah is. This is our map. You got the map here? Nineveh is over here. Jonah is here in Israel. The Mediterranean Sea's here. Joppa is a coast city. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but mo- most are, uh, historians believe it was somewhere in southern Spain. Spain's over here. Now let's get this picture. Jonah's here. God speaks to him. He says, Jonah, get up. Go over here, and I'm going to tell you what to say to these people. Jonah says... Yes, sir, I hear you. Jonah gets here to get on a boat to go over here. Now, don't laugh too hard. You've done that too. Before we get our long, bony finger out and point it at Jonah, there may be times when God's told you to go do something over here and you said, oh, you know, I'm kind of busy right now, Lord. I need to go over here and take care of this first. Well, of course, you know the story. What happens is Jonah, because God's not going to interfere with his will, Jonah gets on a boat in Joppa. And they get out on the sea, and pretty soon this terrible storm comes up. And he goes down, and he's asleep in the bottom of this boat. And it gets so bad that these sailors are afraid, and it's starting to sink. And so they cast lots, like a throwing dice or something, like to figure out who's causing this. And Jonah's name comes up. So they go down, and it's interesting, they're all praying to their God. And finally they go down to Jonah and wake Jonah up. And Jonah comes up, and you know, he basically said, to make the, the long story short, he ultimately says, it's me. So they said, well, pray to your God. They get angry at him. He said, I've, I'm fleeing from my... He knows what he's doing. This is not a question, well, God, I don't know what you're telling me. You know, most of the time we do. But what we like to do is get in our brain and get confused about it, because that becomes an excuse for, oh, this is going to hurt becomes an excuse for not doing it. 
When the Lord shows you something to do, the longer you think about it, the less likely you are to do it because Tarshish looks very nice to you. And so finally they said, well, what should we do? And he finally comes to the conclusion, you've got to throw me over the boat, over the side into the sea. Now, this is the grace of God. It says God had prepared, it didn't say a whale, a great fish. And the fish swallowed him. And the purpose of this fish is to change. See, God won't change your will, but he can sure bring a lot of pressure on it. One moment, Jonah's riding in the relative safety of the boat on the top of the water. The next moment, Jonah's in the sea, and a fish swallows him. This fish must have been large enough so that he wasn't digested, but he wasn't comfortable. He wasn't swallowed by a Marriott Resort hotel room (laughs) with room service and a mini bar. See, the purpose of this fish is to give Jonah a chance to rethink his decision. Now, in the midst of this rethinking process, God's protecting him because there are other things out in that sea that might want to partake of Jonah's presence. Eat him. So God is protecting Jonah on the one hand from the consequences of his own rebellion, but on the other hand, he doesn't have him so comfortable he wants to stay there. Some of you may be going through circumstances right now which are very uncomfortable, but they're not destroying you. And I'm not saying God brought it on you, but he may be allowing you to go through it because he may be trying to get your attention about something that he's tried to get your attention in more simple ways, like telling you to go to Nineveh. And you're sitting in the middle of a belly of a fish. Now, he describes what it's like in there. It's not pleasant. There's seaweed all around him. There, I don't want to offend you, but there are partially undigested parts of other things this fish has swallowed. In other words, it's not a comfort place. It's, it's uncomfortable. And there are times when you step out to do what God's called you to do where you will find yourself in places. In fact, often when he has you step out, he has you step out of what we call your comfort zone. But God will go with you. See, God was with him in the fish. And Jonah comes to his senses and says, I long for the day when I could go back into the temple and worship God. And he repents and remembers his vow. And God has the fish expel him out on the seashore. Guess where he expels him out? (laughs) Facing east. He expels him out facing Nineveh. And he gives him a head start. I'll tell you this little insight into God, and it's based on 30-plus years of experience with him. God has a one-track mind. He can have said, I want you to go to Nineveh, and you spend 10 years in Tarshish. And when you finally come to your sense and say, oh, God, I want you do it, he'll bend you back to Nineveh. Because that's where he wanted you to go. So Jonah what comes to his senses in chapter 3, he sends him to Nineveh. So in chapter 3, he says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach with the message that I'll tell you. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city in the first day's walk, and he cried out. Now it says it was a great city. This city was so big it took three days to walk across it. That's what the verse before says. He cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all. That was the whole sermon. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Seven-word seven message. Walks through the city. 
Get 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Notice, there's no sign of, if you repent, God will save you. He just says, get your bags packed, make sure your will's signed, you're toast in 40 days. Just giving you a warning, you're finished. It's over, God's at it with you, you're done in 40 days. That's it. What happens is the people hear the message and they begin to repent. And they said, perhaps if we seek this God, he may relent. And so they put on sackcloth and ashes and they fast. They mourn before God. They put aside their pleasures. And then the king gets word of this and he declares an official day of fasting. And they begin to see God. And now God repent. God changes his mind and has mercy upon them. Now go to chapter 4. So God has now spared them because they repented. Now we're going to see where the prophet is. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry that God spared them. Because he hated them because of how terrible they were. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I meant when I was still in my country? And I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than live. Now what Jonah is saying is, this is why I went to Tarshish. I knew that if I went over to Nineveh and they just asked you that you'd forgive them and you don't know how terrible and horrible they are, they don't deserve that kind of mercy, then that's why I wasn't going to go there and you made me go. So I'm sitting over here pouting. I knew you'd do that. It's the heart of Jonah that God's going to deal with. Therefore, take my life. He doesn't mean that because he's going to complain in a minute. (laughs) Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade until he might see what was becoming of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant, and the plant withered. And it happened that when the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement, strong east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then Jonah said, God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So Jonah's angry now that the plant's dead. And look what God says to him. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry with the plant, plant, even to death. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said, you had pity on a plant for which you did not labor or make it grow, which came up in a night and perished on a day. You had compassion and pity for a plant that you didn't even create, and it was here today and gone tomorrow. Look at verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Jonah's attitude was they didn't deserve the mercy they got. I knew God would be merciful. They were sinners, horrible, rank, abusive. Terrible sinners. 
And I knew that if God, you sent me there, and I preached that they might repent, and if they repented, I know what you're like. You're going to forgive them. And they don't deserve that mercy. Now listen carefully. The very essence of mercy is you don't get what you deserve. He had confused mercy and and judgment. And he said, they did not get what they deserved. And so God has an object lesson for him. God was merciful to him. He didn't fry him on the spot. He didn't take him in his word. He said, I want to die. God was merciful to Jonah. He didn't say, okay, you got what you had it. That's what you said, you got it. See, God understood, God understood Jonah's heart, really. And he was trying to teach him something. So he has his plant grow up over him. And Jonah becomes enamored with his plant. It provides shelter for him. And it dies like that. And he's angry that this plant's died. And God said, you cared more about a plant. I cared about the 120,000 souls in that city that when they cried out to me, I forgave them. They're more important to me than that plant was to you. We as Christians sometimes look around us and we see how terrible the world is today and how terrible things are around us and we get angry and we want to strike back and basically we want to do what the world does to itself. And we miss the heart of God. God hates unrighteousness. God hates some of the things that are going on in this, in this nation today. He hates it, but he doesn't hate the people. He loves the people. Jesus died for them just as much as he died for you. Understand that you weren't born as a Christian. You were born a sinner. You became a Christian because he had mercy on you and offered you his son whom you received. Doesn't he care just as much about the thousands and hundreds of thousands in Providence? Doesn't he care just as much about the people in your city and your town? Doesn't he care just as much about them out there as he does about us? And Yeah, but we're the family of God. I know we are, but he still loves them. Jesus died for them. His heart and his feeling and his compassion is for their suffering because they need to be saved and delivered and healed and restored. He can hear their cry. He can feel their pain. And you and I are here and he's equipping us with gifts because it's through you and I that he wants to go out and reach the people that he cares so much about. So we cannot allow the attitude of Jonah to come into our thinking. That's religion, of the world's religion. Well, we're above them. We're better than they because we're Christians. We're saved by his mercy and grace, not by anything you and I have done on our own. We're saved by his mercy and grace. And it's tempting sometimes as a church to forget that and think that all the blessings we have is because we've been so good and that's why God's blessed us. No, God blessed us because he loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us and he died for them just as much as he died for you and me. Let's pray.